Welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Jack Omer Jackman, Bicom Senior Research Associate. Today is Tuesday, 13th of February. Joining me today for discussion on current US policy in the in the region and on US-Israel relations is Jonathan Paris. Jonathan is a London-based analyst, former Middle East fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and an advisor to the Chertoff Group in Washington. Jonathan, welcome. Welcome. Great to be here. Let's start with with Rafa, uh, Jonathan, where where all the indications are that, that the Israelis are are preparing an operation. Um, has the U.S. been reassured by by Biden's phone call with Netanyahu over the weekend, in which in which Biden stressed the need for a humanitarian solution for the 1.4 million displaced Gazans there before any kind of operation? Are the Americans well, confident a route back to Khan Yunus can be found? Well, I think uh, there was some modification in Biden before the call. I think he was adamantly against this Rafa op- operation. But I think uh, in the call, he said something like it's it shouldn't happen unless Israel has a credible plan to protect civilians. So it gives Israel the ability to come up with a credible plan. And that's what's what Israel's trying to do. A number of scenarios and uh, that they're they're talking to Egyptians about. And I'm sure they're talking to the United States about to protect, uh, you know, some of the. Uh, so many people crammed into Rafah. I think I've heard 1.4 million people, and it's not a big town. Um, so I, I think the U.S. is there, but they'll have we'll have to see how bloody this this Rafah occupation goes if it happens. Thank you. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna explore a wide range of issues, but let's let's. Stick on the same kind of kind of tone, and let's talk about about Anthony Blinken's visit last week. We really saw him speak in, in tougher terms than at any time since October seventh. Um, the Israelis is you is in general is U.S. patience running out, and what are we to make of of Blinken's insistence on meeting alone with with chief of chief of the IDF staff uh, Halevi? Well, I think uh, Secretary Blinken, you know, speaks for the president, and I think. His impatience, uh, Blinken showed, reflects President Biden's growing impatience, mainly not with Israel. I think Biden's support for Israel remains solid, but I think he, he he's come to the conclusion that Bibi is putting his personal legal interest ahead of Israel's best interest. And once he, you get into that mindset, there's a there's that lack of trust. And and that really uh, is is affecting, I think, the relationship between the the administration and Israel at the moment. As for as far as the Halevi meeting, I think Blinken wanted to hear from Halevi as operational, the operational guy. You know exactly how Israel is planning to protect the civilians in its ongoing operations, because that's really been a big problem for world opinion. But it's been a big problem for the Biden administration it's becoming a domestic political problem so i think that's what he wanted to hear from from uh halevi let's stick with that domestic political political problem and and, and really try and understand how big a domestic political problem it is for him what what what's the what's your understanding in front of u.s public opinion regarding regarding the the, uh, the biden administration policy i mean the headlines see a lot of kind of atypical case studies of like places like Dearborn, Michigan. But what's the national mood? And and do you see it being 
a factor in the election? Uh, the national mood is 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 not Dearborn, Michigan. Dearborn, Michigan, as as, as some of you may know, is a um, is a heavily populated Arab American area um, near the the car making industry. A lot of Arabs emigrated from the Middle East long long time ago. It's a, it's it's predominantly, I believe, a Christian Arab community, as is places in Pennsylvania. So Michigan and Pennsylvania are two very important states in the election. Uh, these are the Midwest swing states. They could go either way. Uh, so the Arab vote is important. But look, uh, it's not clear on the national polls right now if there's a clear uh, loss of, of support for Israel. If anything, it's about even slightly. I mean, people are slightly uh, a majority are less satisfied than very satisfied with Biden's handling of the Middle East crisis. But uh, I think the the real point here is it's too early to tell what the Arab American vote and will have on the election. So many other more is- salient issues are important. What is the health? Uh, what is the health of President Biden? What are the legal issues of of the candidate, presumably candidate Donald Trump? What about these wild cards like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's running? on an anti-vax uh, candidate uh, campaign. What about these so-called unlabeled candidates? There's a whole party called unlabeled candidates and, and the growing Green Party in America. These can all affect the outcome of the election far more than the Arab American voter, any vote against uh, Biden's handling of the Middle East. Thank you, Jonathan. I mean, let's, let's, let's stay with, with, with the issue of kind of U.S attitudes to to Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just just for a minute, both at the kind of political and, I suppose, popular level, do you think they reflect really the kind of status quo ante in in that, you know, are people, do people broadly think about this issue as they thought prior to October 7th and the subsequent war, or has this been potentially kind of paradigm-shifting period in terms of US attitudes? Well, that's a tough question. I still think, despite it being on the front page, if you look, if you open the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, the front page story, Rafa, um, I, I think that by and large, most Americans are focused on other things than foreign policy. And when it comes to foreign policy, most Americans uh, are pretty much in favor of Israel and and either put it this way, those who follow the conflict carefully and see day after day the coverage of civilian casualties in Gaza, and it's really heartbreaking to see so many deaths and wounded Palestinians, those people are affected and they, they are maybe experiencing a paradigm shift. A lot of these people are under the age of 35 and have never been exposed to an Arab-Israeli conflict. I unfortunately have been exposed to all of them since 1967. But but you know, if you don't have that background, you, you could take a pretty tough view about Israel's war. They call it Israel's war. Um but I think by and large, the American public is still with Israel. And to the extent that it's concerned about American foreign policy, it's more about isolationism. It's more about why are we paying so much for our defense? when Europe can't even pay 2% uh, 
uh, of its their GDPs for their own defense, even though they're threatened by Putin in their own backyard. It's those kind of issues that are galvanizing, particularly the Republican uh, masses. Thanks. I mean, let, let's stick with 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 two two questions on on that issue itself. Should Israel be concerned about that kind of sentiment, and should it be concerned that Trump's recent statements on on NATO and the kind of things you, you describe would signal a more isolationist presidency were he to win? You know, isolationism isolationism has always been the. A, a, a fear, but it's never quite materialized. I remember Patrick Buchanan during the, uh, I, I guess it was during the uh, pre-Clinton era, uh, as he was an isolationist, populist Republican candidate. Uh, but he never got anywhere. Look, if Trump gets elected, on the one hand, he's the he's the father of the Abraham Accords. On the other hand, he can't stand Bibi. Okay? On the one hand, he dislikes the Islamic Republic of Iran more than any other country, other than maybe North Korea. And yet he may withdraw U.S. troops from Iraq and Syria, which is a principal aim of the Iranian regime. So I guess I'd have to say, who knows? Uh, sure, there's an isolationist trend. And sure, getting rid of NATO would be devastating, not only for Europe, but for Israel, because it would signal uh, it would push Europe in a different direction away from Israel, I believe. And it would it would signal, a, you know, an isolationist uh, attitude that that would become pervasive. But I don't think that's the entire Republican Party. And I don't think Trump is wholly going to be in that camp once he's elected. Look at what happened with this Ukraine-Israel aid bill yesterday. The Senate is about to pass the bill today. Uh, some A number of Senate Republicans defected from the party line and joined with the Democrats to say, we need to support Ukraine at this time. We need to prevent Putin from, from winning. Sure, most Republicans may be against the Ukraine aid bill uh, for isolationist uh, reasons, and they're primarily against it because they want to be against Biden. But they're not, a, they're not for Putin winning. They're not for the world, you know, uh, the Americans leaving the world, because a lot of these Republicans are real hawks. And when you attack America, they get very, very uh, reactive. So it's very confused, this isolationist canard. Thank you, Jonathan. I mean, that 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 preempts the, the, the second question, which perhaps we can go into a little bit more detail on, which is by these the challenges that Biden has faced in, in packaging military aid to Israel with that to Ukraine. Um, can you explain a little bit a little bit more about the sort of politicking going on here, both within the Democratic Party and especially sort of factions on its left and also within the Republicans themselves between the kind of mainstream and, and what's known as the Freedom Caucus? Well, I think, uh, first of all, just the, the update is that the Senate is about to pass a $95 billion U.S. dollar package for Ukraine, Israel, and a little bit for uh, Taiwan. $14 billion for uh, Israeli missile defense and to finance other weapons of Israel. And humanitarian aid for the Palestinians is included. Um, the Democrats were divided, but they they got on board because they want some some of the left more left Democrats wanted provisions that withheld aid to Israel if they used it in a, in, a, in a way that was incompatible with human rights and laws of warfare, et cetera. But 
it seems like Biden has just issued an executive order uh, uh, or signal that he's going to abide by that himself. So in other words, the Congress didn't, the Democrats didn't feel like they needed a specific provision about that since Biden has, has taken it on. Uh, within the Republican Party, as I said, there are, there is Trump who's talking about, hey, why are we giving aid to the Ukrainians? Let's make a loan. Uh, you know, he, he brings his own business ethos into uh, international affairs with some sometimes uh, chaotic results. But that's the latest mantra. The other mantra of the House Republicans, you mentioned the, the Freedom Caucus is the, this, this sort of, uh, of a right wing Republican group. They will insist probably because the House has to pass the bill as well for the aid to happen. Uh, they may insist on tying it to border controls from Mex the Mexican border, which is a very hot issue in the uh, Republican Party. Thank you, Jonathan. Let, let's let's just change focus. Um, Biden and and the administration in recent weeks have really talked talked hard about a about a, uh, a sort of reinvigorated commitment to to two states. Um, to much kind of uh, cynicism uh, in response. What what kind of timeline are they are they envisaging here, and is it realistic? And and what are their current assessments of of, of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority? Well, a number of things. Uh, first of all, a general statement about war and opportunities that come after wars. You, you remember World War One, and then you had this great uh, uh, Versailles Treaty uh, and uh, League of Nations. But I, I guess the best example of the opportunities that can come out of a very devastating war is the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago when Israel was surprised attacked, just like they were on October 7th. And out of that war followed the Egypt-Israel Egypt Peace Treaty in 1979. Now, this 55-year-old treaty, 55-year-old, think about that. It's older than most people listening to this podcast. It was just reaffirmed by the Egyptian foreign secretary just yesterday in rejecting speculation that Egypt might move away from the treaty if, if, if an Israeli invasion of Rafah precipitated Palestinian emigration into the Egyptian Sinai, which Egypt is very much worried about. Uh, so, so, so there's an opportunity here for something good to come out of this. Uh, I remember right after the war, a noted um, uh, uh, London professor said, this will bring the two-state solution back to the table. It had, it had kind of become invisible in the last four years, as you know. Here's the problem. The Israeli public opinion, not just the right wing, but the public, is much more militant and security conscious after October 7th. And they are likely at best to agree to a long roadmap. I think the key on the Israeli side is getting to an Israeli election which would probably be followed by a centrist government more in tune with the U.S. and the world and in tune with the Arab demand for an irrevocable commitment to two states, to use Saudi language from last week. Irrevocable commitment, not just a slogan, but a commitment. I don't know how you're going to square the Israeli public uh, security consciousness with uh, the Arab demand and, and now the world demand and the U.S. demand for clear and irrevocable steps toward 
uh, toward a two-state solution? I mean, we've heard Biden speak occasionally in, in more kind of uh, measured measured language where, where he says th things like, you know, state a state can can mean a variety variety of, of things. And I wonder if if you think perhaps that that he's envisaging that that kind of irrevocable progress, but perhaps not to a state as the Palestinians have always understood. Well, I think even even Abbas accepts the notion that it would be a demilitarized station. I don't think Abbas contemplates unless he's changed his mind, uh, having a, 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 a real Palestinian army, there will be a Palestinian police force, but there has been a Palestinian police force that's been quite effective at times in keeping the West Bank quiet. And by the way, we shouldn't forget the West Bank has been remarkably quiet in this four-month war in Gaza. And it has something to do with the Israeli intelligence, but it also has to do with Israeli cooperation and help from the Palestinian policing. So I'm not sure. Um, yeah. So how do you define it? it has to be a state? I think the real issue is interim versus final. That was the big conundrum of the Oslo peace process. It was meant to be something that would lead to a final state within a number of, of years, less than 10. And somehow it, it remained interim for the whole period you know, since since basically uh, it began. Um, and so I wonder whether the Palestinians will be more insistent on a more tangible commitment this time than this so, sort of step-by-step uh, -step incrementalism that was favored by U.S. negotiators in previous administration. Whether Biden will go for this is, 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 is a tough question. One final point. The basic problem you have is that the three main parties, Palestinian Authority, Israel, and and the Americans are run by kind of aging leaders or leaders that have run out of gas. And, uh, you know, you think about the United States. Why would Bibi commit to something to President Biden when there's a pretty good chance that the beginning of 2025, less than a year from now, you might have President Trump with a whole different view on the two state solution. So it's kind of they're all waiting each other out. And that doesn't make for rapid decision making. Indeed, uh, let's turn to, to another aspect of, of kind of Biden regional diplomacy. Before October seventh, the big story was was potential normalization with with Saudi, um, with reports suggesting it, it was really not that far off. Um, Biden has really reengaged on the Saudi track in, in recent weeks. Is your understanding that that there's real optimism here? Um, are the Saudi requirements, which you mentioned earlier on, for kind of declarations of intent on Palestinian state, are they a deal breaker? And do you think normalization is, is as central to Israeli interests as it was prior to prior to October 7? Well, I'm so glad you asked this question. I've always been a big fan of Israeli-Saudi uh, dialogue or, or connect connection. I, even after the 73 Yom Kippur War, you know, we talked about the Egypt-Israel treaty coming out of it. I, I speculated even at that point, back in 1974, that there would be some kind of tacit alliance between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Because you think about it, they're both status quo powers. They don't want wars. To, they don't want to eliminate the other. Saudi Arabia, even back then, pretty much accepted Israel, but just wanted to keep it under the table. Now, normalization is about bringing what's under the table above the table. And why is that important? Well, 
there's a practical reason why the Americans want to do it. Uh, actually, there are two. One is by bringing it above the table, you, you get more buy-in for uh, a Palestinian a state, for a commitment to a Palestinian state. And that is a way of getting Saudi money into the reconstruction of Gaza. You, 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 right now, we do not have any plan, the Americans or the, or the Israelis, for what happens the day after this war ends. There's just simply no credible scenario that the Gulf states are going to come in and Egypt's going to come in and clean up after Israel's war. I mean, that, the Arabs have enough problems of their own in their own backyards. Uh, so how, how do you incentivize the Arab moderate, uh, especially the wealthy Gulf states, to, to, to get involved with Gaza? Well, one way is you have a normalized relationship between Saudi and Israel, and that only comes with, with an irrevocable commitment, to use the Saudi language, of Israel to a two-state solution. I don't think Israel's uh, political class right now can, can agree to that. Uh, you know, as, as President Herzog has said, Israel is not thinking two-state solution right now. It's just too scarred by the October 7th massacre. But I think that's the direction we're heading. <clears throat> and one final thing, the U.S. likes normalization for a second reason, which is that by bringing Israel and Saudi together, you, you create the genesis of a Saudi-led regional security architecture that can kind of deter uh, Iran and Iran's proxies from causing mayhem in the region, which they are doing right now. That leads us very, very neat, neatly onto the next question, which is Iran. Um, you mentioned one aspect of, of kind of American thinking in that in that regard. There, How, what is the current U.S. thinking on its on its own Iran strategy? Have the last four months shifted the dial? Do you think, um, in terms of Hamas, of course, but also in terms of direct attacks on on U.S. interests and personnel by Iranian proxies in in the Red Sea? Well, I, I have two kind of answers. I have the answer that I'd like to believe, which is that. The escalation by Iranian proxies who, who recently sent a killer drone after U.S. soldiers and killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan, combined with the Houthi, another proxy of Iran, attacking Red Sea international shipping, have awakened the United States government to the metastasizing of Iran's male, malevolent, malevolent behavior in the region. Iran's proxies are so pervasive that maybe the U.S. is becoming less accepted, uh, accepting of this plausible deniability that Iran always pulls out of the drawer, out of the cupboard, to hide behind its proxies. You know, uh, I think it was Bennett, the previous uh, Israeli prime minister, who said that the head of the octopus is in Tehran, uh, and we should go after the head, not the tentacles. I, I Do you think Biden will strike at the Iranians? No. Israel did. Israel has struck at Iranian senior al-Quds um, military people, maybe a half dozen in the last couple of months, uh, with pinpoint intelligence, no doubt abetted by a, a, secu a security breach from the Syrian side, that compelled Iran to remove or at least hide its remaining senior al-Quds advisors. So, so it does work. I I Iran is very sensitive about losing its own people. They don't mind fighting to the last Arab, but they don't like losing their own people. It is the United States hasn't gotten there. They 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 go after the proxies, but they don't go after the the octopus's head in Tehran. The only thing the 
about Iran that the U.S. has now decided is that the JCPOA is dead. Well, you and I know it's been dead for a long time. I think Washington's lack of a proactive Iran strategy is really part of the problem. Thank you. I, let's let's turn to, to to another yet another front now, which is Israel's northern front. Um, we've seen U.S. negotiator Amos Hochstein, you know, putting in considerable effort on trying to reach a, a diplomatic arrangement uh, with Lebanon. We, just this morning, we've seen a French proposal which would push Hezbollah back uh, 10 kilometers. Who is who is Hochstein talking to on the Lebanese side? Can they deliver? What can they really offer? And where does the US stand on on the on the the seemingly crucial 16 points of, of conflicting border demarcations? Well, I think uh, I think it's, the good news is the US has a very able negotiator in Amos Hochstein. He was effective in getting that maritime agreement uh, to allow the dis discovery of oil and gas offshore uh, for Lebanese and for Israel to continue its offshore uh, discoveries there. Uh, that's good news because it, it helps the economy of, of Lebanon, which is in desperate straits. He's talking to the Lebanese government. He's not talking to Hezbollah. It's interesting that Hezbollah just responded to that French proposal uh, that you mentioned uh, which proposed a withdrawal of Hezbollah from the border by saying, quote, it would not comment until a ceasefire has been effected in Gaza. In other words, he's not saying either, even he's not saying once the war is over, we'll consider it. He's saying we won't even respond until it's over. Um, so I'm not sure that's going to happen. But I, I, I will tell you this. Right now, it suits both parties to deter the other in these tit-for-tat war of attrition. It's like the war of attrition between 67 and 73 was somehow in like 1971 or 72 here. Uh, they don't want a war, but uh, but they are willing to keep keep it hot. Uh, and, and Iran is enjoying the way the Middle East is unraveling as it is. So they sit unscathed while their Hezbollah attack, attack dog remains ready when needed. But here's the problem. For Israel, it has an internal problem of 80,000 citizens who have been evacuated from the northern towns and kibbutzim. They don't want to move back to the borders because of what happened to the uh, to, to the kibbutzim and towns in, near Gaza on October 7th. And so before these people lose another tourist season next year, 2025, They've already pretty much lost this year's. Israel may have to issue its own ultimatum to Hezbollah once this Rafah crisis passes and says, look, either you accept the French proposal or some proposal like it, or we're going to move to push you away from our borders, at least maybe not all the way to the River Latani, uh, as the UN calls for, but a good 10 miles, 5, 10 miles away. Uh, as for the 16 points, you know, I think when Israel withdrew uh, from Lebanon, they withdrew pursuant to internationally agreed borders, which I think the, the Americans signed on to. So the fact that the Lebanese are objecting to these borders now, uh, it, it just seems far-fetched that they're going to get anywhere. But I suppose the United States would say, yeah, let, let them discuss it and, and let's figure out uh, a, a solution. But I'm not sure that the Lebanese have the evidence on their side, but there's 16 disputes, so maybe one, two, or three might might have some validity. We'll have to see. Thank you, Jonathan. You mentioned earlier on the the acute need 
of the Gazan population for for aid and the the desire the willingness of, of the Biden administration to to increase it we've also seen however um the recent developments regarding UNRWA um and the implication of of Hamas with that uh, organization what's the US plan in 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 this in this regard perhaps also touching on 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 you know israeli perceptions of quite how much aid is currently ending up in 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 hamas hands right right well there's no doubt that israel is very concerned when these aid shipments come in particularly when you're dealing with like communication equipment you know the aid agencies need to communicate in gaza so they send these 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 communication but that's the precisely the stuff that hamas needs so it, it, it's often the case that the israelis will not permit those kind of equipment to go in uh in, into gaza from from egypt uh look uh UNRWA, you you alluded to the fact that it's pretty clear that UNRWA personnel participate in the october 7th massacres that's bad enough but 10 times as many were members of hamas or palestinian islamic jihad employed by UNRWA. now that was bad enough to to you know push the western funders to to put a pause on their funding but last week, you had the bombshell finding of an extensive Hamas computer farm. It's like one of these Amazon computer farms, you know, that we have in the clouds where they had one right underneath the UNRWA's headquarters. And this has made UNRWA's long-term viability in its present form a big question mark. Congress is probably going to support Israel's maximal demands for the medium to long term. Although the Biden administration may wait and see what comes out of the UN Special Committee's investigation of UNRWA. Uh, so I, I think... For the short term, though, the funding needs are so acute because of the civilian uh, disaster going on right now in Rafah and elsewhere in Gaza that even the Israelis want to permit UNRWA to continue in its present form. Uh, but there is that danger, as you mentioned, that the, the, the stuff continues to be siphoned off into Hamas and better mechanisms have to be found. To a get the aid in. One idea I heard is that you could ship some of the aid into Rafah. You don't have to go through the uh, by land from Egypt. You could go by ship. But all these things, it's very difficult to implement in a war zone. Thank you, Jonathan. One one final question. Another huge issue in the last month or so has has centered on the the ICJ. Um, and the case brought by brought by South Africa accusing Israel of genocide, and the court's interim decision that that they will uh, be hearing you know hearing that case in full. Um, what's your understanding of the administration's position on that on the case? Well, we know that the United States opposed the ICJ from taking on the genocide case brought by South Africa when it was first brought, and I, I believe that. Israel and the United States were both not displeased with the decision of the tribunal to refuse to call for an Israeli ceasefire in its interim ruling. I didn't say that Israel was pleased with it, and I assume the U.S. wasn't pleased with some aspects of the ruling. But the result was not a bad result from the U.S. point of view. It's still a bad precedent to bring genocide charges. The, you know, genocide, the, the, the concept of committing genocide was created in 1946 uh in 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 the uh, aftermath of the holocaust when you had a clear decision of of a country to destroy a group as a group now i would say 
that in this case, if you wanted to find evidence of, of, of a charter calling for the destruction of a group, you would find it in the Hamas charter and not anything in, in the Israeli uh, society. And it's, it's interesting that I just noted some Israeli hostage families are, are trying to bring a lawsuit to the ICJ declaring that Hamas has committed genocide uh, in this war. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. I think it, we've touched on a lot of interesting points, and if nothing else, I think we've we've shown quite how many interlocking pieces there are, uh, adding up to the kind of total current situation, and how many difficult uh, needles the administration is having to thread. Jonathan Paris, thank you very much. You're welcome. Mm -hmm.